0: Hello and welcome to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. After a painful delay of a few weeks, we're back to talk about NHRA drag racing, back to talk about how the season ended, what's been happening since the season ended, and what we can look forward to in 2020. There's news, there's rumors, there's history, and there's the future. We're going to cover as much of that as possible on this episode and set ourselves up for a fun winter of in the offseason. Welcome everybody to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. Welcome back to the podcast world, NHRA drag racing fans. I am glad to be back. It has been uh, an exciting few weeks here, obviously, and I apologize for being delinquent in my podcasting duties, but uh, it's tough to do that when you're across the world in different places as uh, things have progressed here. So where do we begin? Well, we got to begin at the end. we got to begin at the end talking about the, uh, talking about the finals. This is going to be kind of a solo act today. It is uh, the Tuesday just after the PRI show. Pretty much every racer I know of is either uh, face first and trying to get some last second deals done or they've gone off with their family or they generally do not want to speak to me. And that's fine. That's kind of like how it is every week. I'm kidding, of course, mostly. But um, it's just going to be us talking here today and we'll get back on the train with the guests uh, on next week's show. But so to uh, briefly review what the timeline has been over the last couple of weeks and some of the topics I'm going to touch on today, we ran the finals As we always do, finished on Sunday, just uh, one of the all-time greatest days I have ever spent at a drag strip. Depending on the outcome of the race and your favorite racer, you can agree to disagree or you can just agree to revel in the craziness that was that event, especially that final day and everything that led up to it. Then we had the awards on Monday night. Spectacular evening. Uh, Everybody dresses in adult clothes. I dressed in a tuxedo that had a jacket that appeared to be made of the drapes from the original Sands Casino in Vegas. The douche, our man Carducci's tuxedos uh, always steps up to the plate. The guy's awesome, and he always comes to the, uh, always brings the uh, the fastball when it comes to NHRA awards ceremony time. So thanks to Carducci's tuxedo in Claremont, California, for hooking me up with that awesome jacket and uh, for setting up what was a, certainly a memorable evening for many reasons. Austin Coyle received the Lifetime Achievement Award. You can watch his speech. John Ford's very emotional standing there with uh, with Austin Coyle on the stage. The uh, YouTube channel of NHRA's YouTube channel has the entire award show if you'd like to watch that and see all the championship acceptance speeches and some of the bad comedy that I tried to employ over the course of the night. After that, we woke up the next day and headed for the airport and went to Saudi Arabia. Uh, many of you may have heard about this event called the Global Auto Salon that happened in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. The NHRA was invited to be part of that. We're going to spend a fair amount of time talking about not only that event, but what a, what drag racing is in that part of the world, what it could be, and ultimately what it will be. Then we came home, spent a little bit of time with my family, which was nice, kind of reacclimated myself to the to the people who uh, I am uh, you know, most closely related to, went on, went on a trip with them, which was cool, which was another week that I missed a podcast. Then I uh, came home, went basically straight to the PRI show, where we had uh, the NHRA stage set up, had interviews all weekend long, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you can watch those uh, on NHRA.com or anytrade.tv as well, if you're an anytrade.tv subscriber. But those interviews are cool because, uh, you know, the SEMA interviews are interesting because the season's not over yet. It's almost over, but it isn't. But then we get to PRI and the season. Not only is the season over, but you're in this place where everybody's doing deals. People are there doing deals on parts. So they're trying to get sponsorships secured. They're there trying to get a ride for next year. So the interviews at the PRI show, uh, a lot different in terms of their context and their content than what you would have heard at SEMA. Huge rumors swirling around the sport right now. Um, and again, I stress these are rumors, but I'm going to lay them out there because, frankly, everybody else is talking about them, so I can't wait. Um, we can talk about Antron Brown and Brian Karate getting back together. Now, that's a big story, right? Putting the band back together, championship combination there. But the potentially bigger story here is that Antron Brown may be doing that as a team owner and uh, this is a rumor that's been floating around for a while. I'm sure we're going to get finality on this after the first of the year, I would guess. No one's going to announce anything like on Christmas Eve. I think they're still uh, still working on some of the details there, but that's my understanding that Antron Brown will be a team owner next year. Of course, the rumors uh, on the Coletta Motorsports side, they signed a sponsorship deal with Mobile One, which is great, bringing Mobile One back into the sport. We know that Richie Crampton will not be driving the top fuel car that he was in last year. He told us so during the television broadcast. Rumor has it that Sean Langdon will be climbing back into the saddle of a top fuel car, which is, uh, which is another addition to an already stacked field of top fuel competition that uh, we had in 2019, or 2019 will be even better in 2020. What else can we talk about? Joe Morrison named the driver of the Leverage family car. That's not a rumor, that's fact. They announced that at the show. Some rumors uh, regarding potential sponsorships for... Um, teams like Justin Ashley, one of the names that came up, you know, potentially Justin Ashley's going to have something to announce here pretty soon, which is a big deal among other potential sponsor announcements. Pretty force. What we're expecting to hear, whether we do or we don't, what we're expecting to hear is that Monster Energy is going to be back involved in a big way on that car, which I think is huge for drag racing. I think it's uh, a brand that is internationally known, a brand that does a good job promoting its drivers. Obviously, Brittany had great success with them winning a championship in 2017. We've seen the reemergence of the Monster logo on the side of her top fuel car. We know that Monster is not involved with NASCAR anymore in the level that they were. So, obviously, some marketing money has freed up in the motorsports realm there. So, we're going to find out what that's about. Crew Chief Rumors. Who's going to be pushing their toolboxes across the street up there, in, uh, up there in Brownsburg, Indiana? Most of that stuff, again, will be coming after the new year. So, and then we have multiple new pro stock drivers coming. Elite Motorsports has not officially announced, but they will have two full time pro stock cars coming out in addition to everything else they got going on so elite Motorsport's gonna be killing it uh on that front with two more cars. My understanding is that Fernando Quadra has uh effectively or will effectively move Nick Ferry and his entire operation from Salt Lake to North Carolina, and that will be their own in some ways self contained team I think I believe he will still uh, maintain a presence with KB, but his son's cars will be Nick Ferry powered and Nick Ferry will be the kind of engine builder overseer of those uh, entries. Uh, Mike Salinas announced at PRI that he is uh, that he is adding Janae. His daughter Janae is going to come on, drive a super comp car this year under the tutelage of Sean Langdon, then will advance to an A fuel dragster and ultimately advance to a top fuel car. His daughter Jasmine is already in an A fuel car and has designs on racing top fuel sooner rather than later. Would not surprise me if we see her in a top fuel car, at least uh, sporadically, near the end of the 2020 season. Big deal there. Also rumors that he may be building a shop somewhere in Indiana as well, where everybody else is at. So um, this is all positive stuff, guys. This is not like, oh, this guy's quitting. This guy's leaving. This guy's not coming back. Uh, If you've noticed, everything I've said has been in addition to a replacement of or uh, money has come in the correct direction for drag racing. So I came out of the PRI show kind of clicking my heels a little bit going, man, we are going to kill it next year. I mean, just there's a ton of uh, the Lewis and Foley car coming back. Artie Allen in Florida, Lee Calloway, these teams that are going to pop up and run four, six, eight races are going to change the face of what Top Fuel looks like. And we will have races with 20 plus cars. We've had one or two this year. We're going to have multiple more uh, 20-plus car races. Who knows what Indy's going to look like? Finally, all these old guys that chew on my backside about car counts and everything. We get to Indy, we have two dozen top fuel cars. No, it's not 1970 again, but boy, that's bigger than anything I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen, since I've been traveling to professional-level drag races for nearly 20 years now, I've never seen more than 20... I've never seen more than 22 or 23 legitimate top fuel dragsters modern top fuel dragsters in the same place and there are multiple opportunities next year where that could be a reality so that is the rumor portion of the program and as you can tell and these are all good rumors and Alexis DeJoury coming back not a rumor that's fact we know that and who else knows uh, who knows what else is lurking in the shadows the pro modified category holy smoke is that going to be crazy taking the kind of taking the reins off of that one in terms of how you have to how you or what you need to do to commit to run the series. You don't have to commit to anything anymore. You've got to commit to paying an entry fee and come and run your car. So Gainesville, look out. Um again, potential for thirty to fifty cars at some races. Can you imagine that forty plus pro mods like, oh I don't know to a place like Indy trying to qualify? Holy cow. And a bunch of those people will be people you have never heard of before, which is the best thing. Loads of great regional pro mods out there are going to uh, going to take a stab at uh, running NHRA events this year in the quarter mile. And that does not that does not make me happier than anything else on earth. I love it. We're going to get to have that moment in first round eliminations where we look over and go, Who? Who just beat him? What? What just happened there? That's going to be great. So that's uh, kind of what's going on at PRI. But now I guess we've got to back the truck up and start talking about the World Finals. It was, uh, without a doubt, the most entertaining drag race I've ever been to. I I didn't know what could get better or top Seattle this year that I think uh, was leading the league in that category (laughs) before we got to Pomona. Um, It all started Friday. It it started Friday, first session of qualifying in Pro Stock, when it took Tony Pedregon, I, and everybody else in the world about six seconds to understand what Greg Anderson was trying to do, what he was going to do, and ultimately what he succeeded in doing. This Machiavellian move to find himself and align himself with Erica Enders in the first round. The only shot KB Racing had to try to stop her and to have Jason Line win a championship or Bo Butner win a championship was to get her out early. And it's one thing to think about it. It's one thing to attempt it. It's another thing to do it multiple times because you've got to remember, over the course of qualifying, really the first couple of sessions, first sessions one and two, Because we knew that Saturday was going to be a lot hotter. We didn't think there'd be a lot of movement in pro stock on Saturday as far as the the, uh, echelons of the qualifying order. Maybe in the lower part of the field, which we'll get to in a second. But we figured up top it was going to stay about where it was. So he did it correctly in the first round. Erica ends up uh, on the top half of the sheet, and he coasts his way to the bottom half, and they're lined up. And then he did it again and found her again in that second session. And when that happened, he was 15th, she was second. We thought, okay. Odds are she is going to remain second. His danger at that point, because we had a, enough uh, pro stock cars for a bump spot, his danger was potentially being bumped out of the field. And that didn't happen. He stayed 15th, and then we went into Sunday morning with this incredible story of what was going to happen. This is probably the most single-anticipated pro stock first-round pairing that I can remember in my life as an announcer. Back in the day, predating me i'm sure some of the glidden wj stuff or wj alderman or wj jeffrey on all that stuff i'm sure there was a few of those as well but for me This was a seminal moment in my career and in my life in drag racing for Pro Stock, and it made everybody sit forward on the couch. We were about ready to climb through the glass in the tower when they finally came around to make their run, and it went Erica's way by four thousandths of a second. The one thing that kind of blew my mind was the amount of people that took umbrage with what Greg Anderson tried to do that were somewhat offended that he would try to do this, and The people that were offended were not people who are sportsman drag racing fans that understand this is a regular occurrence in sportsman drag racing, especially when we get down near the end of the season when people are racing for championships, when you have to try to block or stop somebody. People do this all the time. They don't necessarily do it successfully, but they try. And the the most lame argument that I heard from people was that it was diving. And it is the opposite. It's like diving in front of a train. It's not diving. He didn't he didn't you know, he didn't try to line up with, with Jason and be a stoolie in the first round. He tried to arguably line up with the hottest pro stock driver in the country, a woman that seemed almost predestined to be a champion this year after the US Nationals and everything that happened there and she had exercised all the demons. This was the anti dive. This was this was running into the machine gun fire of war. I mean, I don't understand how anybody could conceive it as diving. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And uh, a lot of people thought that. So shame on those people. But uh, it made for great drama. Erica wins first round. Erica beats Chris McGehee and locks up the championship in round number two. On the funny car side, you know, Robert Height had a good program coming into the finals. He he needed to not, you know, uh, have some sort of catastrophe, which he did not have, except in the finals he did. Some different stories involving in this one. The initial one I was told was that the engine had expired on the burnout. Now that ended up being incorrect. That was uh, I talked to Jimmy Prock and Chris Cunningham that night in the Winter Circle, or actually around the Winter Circle, because Jack Beckman uh, won the race. But they were kind of hanging out around there, and they had had some circumstantial evidence that they thought that the engine had uh, had effectively blown up uh, on the huge burnout that Robert did. It was not the case. What ended up happening was it did stall because the thing starved itself for fuel after Robert uh, grabbed the brakes to stop it, and he had burned so much of it on that uh, legendary now burnout. The car sitting dead in the water at half track, give or take. Beckman's back there idling. Robert jumps over the fence. The crowd's going crazy, and Jack Beckman speeds his way past that car, wins the race. It was a very odd way. Like everything else on Sunday at the Pomona, it was kind of an odd way to have it go down. But Jack Beckman goes into the offseason as a finals winner. That team uh, came on strong at the right time of the year. They just didn't quite have enough to stop Robert, who, again, just uh, end-to-end, the whole season for Robert Height was spectacular. One of the, if not the single best career year he has had. Led the points basically nonstop all the way from Pomona to Pomona. So congratulations to the Auto Club team. They put on a clinic. Then there was Top Fuel. And boy, we all know what happened in the first round of Top Fuel. Steve Torrance, Cameron Foray get into it at the top end of the racetrack after Cameron uh, does what he has to do. Honestly, you know, there's no fault to Cameron Foray. He said, listen, I agree with everything you said in his interview. It's like, what do you expect me to do? Come up here and and be a speed bump? You know, I like his plugginess. I like the fact that he had the gumption to do it and the fact that he executed it properly. And again, that's the thing we got to go back to with these finals is the execution of all this stuff. Everything that happened most everything that happened happened because people planned to do it, they tried to do it, and they did it correctly, and it made for high drama. Just like for Greg Anderson, though, uh, for Cameron Frey and Greg Anderson share the the, um, the distinction of trying something that didn't quite work, but Cameron Frey puts Steve Torrance on edge, takes his time staging, goes in deep, and then off to the races we go. At the top end, they had a conversation that turned into a bit of a shoving match. Steve got his uh, hand up into Cameron's face, and then the internet melted down from there. Um, we lack, in drag racing, we lack, in my opinion, emotional moments like that, especially in the modern times. So, hey, look, a couple of guys got into it. Nobody so much as ended up with a scratch on on their body. Um, not the greatest example you want to set for, you know, for kids. I get that. I get the whole argument of of all that kind of stuff. But it is sanctimonious at some level. Some of these people that get so over the top about this, it's just, it's, it's you know, listen, if your glass house is is uh, made out of Lexan that's three inches thick feel free to throw all the rocks you want but if you're going to start throwing rocks about somebody's personality about the way somebody lives their life the way somebody operates you got to be ready for the rocks to come back at you and uh, look Steve Torrance uh, you you can't condone it you can't say oh that was great that he put his hand on Cameron Foray the act wasn't great but what stirred up or what it stirred up I think was great because what we saw was this illustration of how much people love some drivers and dislike others. And we saw Cameron Frey come up the return road. He's the hometown guy. He's from Huntington Beach, California. He's a bucks-down guy. He's racing on a budget that uh, probably doesn't even cover the lug nuts on Steve Torrance's car. And he was greeted as a hero. The grandstands were on their feet, sh- screaming and yelling, hands up. He was standing up in the car. It was a, a kind of a spellbinding moment to watch the California fans rally around their guy. And uh, really, kind of treated him like the hometown son that he is. So that was awesome. Conversely, when Steve Torrance came off the return road, the place went berserk in the other direction. People were the same. People were standing, and um, majority of them had their thumbs down. It was like something out of uh, you know ancient Greece or Rome or something, where you know the emperor thumbs down. It was, was was always a bad sign for the guy in the Coliseum when the emperor put his thumb down. But the the fans responded to someone that they feel wronged their hometown boy, and. I've been around this sport a long time. I've, I was with people who have been around this sport twice as long plus as I have, and all of them to a T said, I have never heard somebody booed that hard at a drag strip. Steve Torrance met with NHRA officials. Of course, he gets a fine, all that other stuff. Ultimately wins, uh, ultimately wins a championship, of course. Does what he needs to do as a, as a driver, as a professional, to win the championship. Doug Coletta and Richie Crampton race in the final round. Doug wins the drag race, comes within three points of winning the world championship, and was greeted um, with an ovation at the NHRA Awards, something that you should probably watch. Um, Greeted with an ovation that, uh, for the ages, a a complete standing ovation. Entire room is on their feet when Doug Coletta was introduced as the runner-up for the fifth time in his career in the top fuel category. And then Pro Stock Bike was the zaniest, craziest, most... Awesomely weird thing in history. Gianna Salinas wins the race. Gianna Salinas uh, made us all look foolish in, in many ways in terms of what happened in the first round. Because in our pre-final show, all the prognosticators, I had everybody involved basically in the NHRA on Fox team. And we all just foregone conclusion, Andrew Hines, your champion. All he's got to do is basically stage the bike, win the first round, and that's kind of it. Well, he did stage the bike, and then he rolled backwards, and the red light came on. Gianna Salinas wins the first round. Okay. And she comes up in round two. Now we got now we got uh, Matt Smith involved in this thing. We got Jerry Savoie as a potential championship candidate, and Gianna Salinas keeps going rounds. She beats Matt Smith, knocks him out. Then she runs into Jerry Savoie in the final. And Jerry Savoy, all he had to do was win the final and he would win the championship. And again, everyone said, okay, well, Jerry's going to be the champion. And frankly, I was going to deem him the accidental champion because 2019 wasn't a season he was planning on making a championship run at. He was planning on running a very limited schedule. And then as things started to happen and things started to go his way, he understood that he was in contention. And certainly beyond that was uh, a legitimate threat to win the whole thing especially with the resurgent resurgent performance of the Suzuki motorcycle. So Jerry gets going, starts his burnout, and the bike quits. Okay, that happens. We look over. They put the starter on it. It fires up again, and it sounds like hot garbage. And we look at Jerry's body language. He kind of dips his head down a little bit in frustration. And at that point, both Tony Pedregon and I knew that this was going to be a moment because Jerry limps the bike to the starting line, Puts the thing up on the two-step. Let's go with the clutch lever, and it shuts off. And there goes Gianna Salinas down the racetrack in the finals for her first career victory. And also, when that happened, Andrew Hines won the championship. And I made a joke about the fact that the whooshing sound everybody heard was the Harley-Davidson team beginning to breathe again after five hours of complete and utter, uh, I don't want to call it terror, but certainly frustration. And Andrew Hines, you know, when they had it present on the check and stuff, he was still in the pits. He didn't even come to the starting line to watch. He didn't want to see it happen. He didn't want to see what we all thought was going to happen, that Jerry was going to go out there and light one up and just run down the racetrack. He was a lot faster than Gianna had been all weekend long, faster than most everybody else at the racetrack. And then that happened. And he was, uh, he had to hop on a scooter and, and fly to the top end to get down there to meet Glenn Cromwell to get the check to talk to Amanda Busick and get his jacket and his medal from Al Rondon and Mellow Yellow. So it was just beyond anything I think any of us has ever seen before. And it was a nice night the next night to have the awards. You know, it, that day ended. And all of us, like when that day ended, all of us just were staring at each other because it was two things. One, it was, wow, I can't believe the season's over. Two, I can't believe the season ended like that. And three, why can't we do this again next week? <laughs> I can't speak for everybody on that front, but I know that was my mentality. It's like, oh, this is so good. I mean, it was poetic and it was great, but, man, I wanted to be back out there next week to see what was going to happen again. And we're in the midst of our, our break. We're in the midst of waiting to get back to Pomona again. But what a way to end the year. We're going to come into the Winter Nationals, my opinion only, I guess, Um with a level of momentum and interest in NHRA Metal Yellow Drag Racing, I don't think we've had to kick off a year in a long time. I feel like you're going to have people buying tickets to boo Steve Torrance. You're going to have t- people buying tickets to cheer on Cameron Ferrey if he's driving Terry Haddock's car again. I expect that he will be. You're going to have people buying tickets to see what's going to happen in Pro Stock Bike and Funny Car and all that kind of stuff. And It was just a, a chaotic, awesome, unexpected way to end the 2019 season. And chaotic... And unexpected are the two greatest things you can have in drag racing or any motorsport. Between the personal conflicts, between the on-track conflicts, the mechanical problems, the just outright lunacy of the entire day and the broadcast, it was nonstop adrenaline. And it is a day that uh, I will never, ever forget in terms of my drag racing announcing career, which I hope lasts a lot longer than just this season, which I know that it will. So that's a good thing. Um, the awards the next night were great. People made their acceptance speeches. Uh, you know, some ver- verbal barbs were thrown in some of the speeches, if you listen. Good stuff. We had a lot of fun that night. It's always a great time. Everyone's all dressed up, and then you go down to the after party, and everything's cool. Following that, one of the most interesting cultural life experiences I have ever had came up when Tony Pedragon. And I, as well as Steve Reintjes, Jeffrey Young, Brad Gerber, and a contingent from the NHRA, including some of our great production people like Shane Gillespie and others, went to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. We were invited to be part of an event called the Global Auto Salon. And to describe this to you, it's the people are using the SEMA show analogy, which I guess is correct. You know, it's it's in that vein. Um, I would describe it as the greatest automotive spectacle I have ever seen. I'll clarify that in a minute. But in terms of size and scope and just general craziness, this thing um, this thing beat them all. We had a massive tent. So we were there was a massive tent set up all all over this event and they had everything from monster trucks to drifting. They had a full-size Hot Wheels loop that a stuntman was driving um, a Jaguar f pace through a supercharged 555-horsepower SUV. He was making full-size loops of this thing. Ferrari was there with an F1 car and a bunch of display sports car vehicles. There was a stunt driving display. There was exotics. There was an au- multiple auctions. There was The tent we have to be in was filled with hundreds of cars that had been brought over by the organizers of this event from america and i'm talking everything from tom bailey's uh, drag week camaro to richard freeman bringing 21 cars from elite motorsports and all this stuff was for sale the downside is nobody bought anything so it's going to be interesting to see how that event morphs and changes over the years but it, or if it happens again but in terms of the automotive enthusiasm that we saw it's incredible and You know, we got some heat from some people. Me personally, I say we. Me personally got some heat from people for going because, you know, of geopolitical reasons and this and that. And um, my argument there, I guess, is that in my life, I think in a lot of people's lives, there's like certain unifying factors. Cars have been something that drag racing has shown since its very beginnings to unify people. During eras in this country's history, you could go to a drag where where people were living segregated lives and where things were really crummy. You'd go to the drag strip, and there'd be Mexican guys and black guys and white guys and Asian guys all over the place just doing their thing. And no one was no one was paying any attention to that. It was about the competition. It was about the cars. It was about that unifying factor. And so for the people that gave me some guff about being part of this thing— Uh, My response has been like it's it's in some ways like a diplomatic mission. We went over there. We met thousands of people that had never seen a dragster before that had never seen a funny car before that knew virtually nothing about drag racing. And that country is changing in rapid ways. It's changing um, in many cultural ways. They're making significant changes as we were there. Laws were changing when we left. Laws were changing. It is a different place from the United States. I can tell you that right now. there's no comparison between the two. I was very happy to get home after the event. Not that I was you know fearful of anything, but it's just one of those things when you you know you don't quite know what you got until you get somewhere that they, they don't have it where it's different. So Saudi Arabia um, in the in the auto show sense was an incredible spectacle. It was neat to spend time hanging out with people that I see at the racetrack but never really get time to spend personal time with. Bo Butner was over there. We spent a ton of time. He, Tony Pedregon, and John Kernan and I spent a lot of time hanging out together, eating meals together, and it was a great experience to uh, get to know him a little bit better and just kind of see what the whole scene was in that part of the world. They do have a drag strip there and we visited it. And this is where things get really interesting in terms of uh, the relevancy to, to this conversation. So, uh, Darab Motorsport, Durab Motor Park is the drag strip. It's about 45 minutes from where we were staying. Um, it's not too far outside the city of Riyadh, which has several million people that live in it. And this is a beautiful drag strip. We did a feature piece on NHRA.com about it. You can check it out. John Kernan uh, shot and edited that piece. And you get a good look at the drag strip itself, the facilities, and It is a concrete and uh, asphalt hybrid track. It's 1.3 kilometers long. They do roll racing on it. They drag race on it. And it's the only privately owned drag strip in the Middle East. It's the only drag strip in the entire country of Saudi Arabia. And they are at an infancy stage of drag racing in that country that is very interesting. And, you know, they race very uh, frequently in places like Dubai and Abu Dhabi and Kuwait. Um, and the uh, United Arab Emirates, you know, they, they have multiple drag strips around that part of the world. Uh, Qatar, obviously, Bahrain. But the difference is all those drag strips were built and are owned by the government. This is a, a much more humble, privately owned little racetrack. Surface was as good or better than several of the racetracks that we race on in the NHRA Tour, no doubt. Amenities were there. They have a medical building, they have suites, they have the whole program. He doesn't make a lot of money, nor does he have a lot of traffic on this racetrack. And um, it's something that is a learning curve. And because so few people in the country really know about drag racing and the ones that do know about it um, are kind of brand new at it, they're at an interesting place and uh, there's a lot of room for that sport to grow, for our sport to grow there. And there have been some conversations already about trying to get over there and do some sort of an exhibition to show people really what it's all about in terms of our NHRA Yellow Drag Racing Series action um, to show people kind of the high level of, of competition that exists in the world of NHRA drag racing and just give people a generalized sense of what's possible because right now, I mean, we spent days on end explaining what a funny car was to people. We had Cruz Pedragon's car in our booth, and it was neat to show people and talk about superchargers and nitromethane and talk about horsepower and talk about speed and just blow and boggle their mind over what's possible out there in terms of performance. So the most exciting part of me or for me on that trip was the drag strip visit and the underlying understanding of the fact that this sport is untapped in Saudi Arabia. And as their country continues to change and their laws change and people are a little bit more free to modify vehicles and to make changes and to go involve themselves in competition, I have a distinct feeling that the world of drag racing is going to quickly, uh, quickly, quickly grow in that country. So Saudi Arabia, end of the day, incredible country, uh, great people. Um, You know, we, we were having cool conversations at the drag strip with drag racers. It was not odd. It was not strange. It was just us standing there talking about drag racing, about how to make things better and talking about our countries. I mean that's the other thing too. We you have a lot of conversations with guys that had never been to America before, so they don't know what to think about us. We'd never been to Saudi Arabia, so we didn't really know what to think about them. Everybody's got their picture in their mind about what they think they should think or what they think they know we didn't know spit. We didn't know anything about going to that country and uh, learned a lot and came away understanding that there's a lot of hot rodders over there just really itching to get their itching to get their hands on the equipment to go drag racing. So can't wait to maybe help shepherd that along a little bit, maintaining some contact with the folks at Jarab uh, Motor Park and just kind of working with them a little bit on some tips and ideas and kind of things to help their world and program progress. So we got home from Saudi Arabia, then it was basically time for Thanksgiving. And uh, then we went to PRI, told you about what we saw, what we talked about at PRI. The NHRA stage was great. Tons and tons of drivers, manufacturers, sponsors, people making announcements up there about what their plans are for 2020. All of that was uh, all of that was pretty spectacular. The state of the sport, you know, that was another thing I was involved in at PRI. So uh, at PRI, I hosted the awards for the NMRA and the NMCA, and I hosted the PDRA Championship Awards, and the one constant through all of it is the fact that these series are growing. Our series is growing. Their series are having great, great years. They all had great seasons. We've met the champions, heard their stories, and I don't prescribe or I don't subscribe, I should say, to the theory of uh, things being not healthy in drag racing. You know, I I, listen, if you love street outlaws, no prep Kings, you're helping drag racing. If you go to a street outlaws, no prep Kings taping, you're helping drag racing because you're supporting a racetrack. And that was really the conversation I had with a load of people this weekend, Uh, fans stopping by the booth, people just kind of shooting the breeze, talking about their thoughts on where drag racing is and where drag racing is going. But when you walk around the PRI show, These hundreds of thousands of square feet of display, of equipment, of speed parts, of technology, the show is dominated by drag racing. Yes, there is a very strong um, sportsman stock car racing contingent there. Road racing is represented, off road trucks, all that stuff is part of PRI. But when you walk around that show, the majority of parts, pieces, and concentration is on drag racing. So, how healthy is the sport? As good as it's been in a very, very long time. You have more options of places to go, people to see, things to support. Um, it's great. It makes competition improves the breed, is what the is what the saying has been forever. Competition improves the breed for the NHRA because it causes NHRA to think about how things are done. It causes us to look at our approach and how we do things and how we how we kind of brand ourselves and move forward. We can look around and, and really see what's working in the sport of drag racing and frankly what's working is a lot in the world of drag racing right now talking to track operators they're very um, happy they're very positive in their outlook for the season and it's just great I, I feel you know it sounds pretty Pollyanna to say but it's it's tough to it's tough to find negatives at this point. That can all change, of course, and everything goes in cycles, but we are on an up part of the cycle right now that I hope lasts for a good long time for the wellness of the series, for the wellness of the tracks, for our car counts, for sponsorships, for all that stuff. You heard me mention several people making sponsor announcements and new car announcements at PRI, so all that was pretty spectacular as well. The last thing I kind of want to touch on today is the winter plan for the podcast, so, yeah, I'm going to make these things all winter long, going to make a bunch of them and going to be able to expand our topic matter because it's the off season. We can kind of do what we want. So look forward to some interviews with legends of the sport of drag racing. Look forward to some uh, topical shows where we maybe go down, have some fun topics and we'll have some guests on to talk about stuff. But just wanted to make sure I got back on the horse here and got, uh, got podcasts rolling once again. It is a great, great end to 2019 at the finals. It was a fantastic season of NHRA drag racing. A rookie year for myself and Tony to worked together, so only going to get better for next year in terms of that. And uh, just looking forward to, as everyone is, getting back to Pomona, California for the 2020 season to start. So thanks for listening. I wish you all a Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy New Year, whatever you're celebrating at this point of the uh, of the year. It is almost to a close. We're about ready to open the door on 2020 here, and it's going to be great. So thanks for tuning in to this episode of the NHRA Insider Podcast. A bit of a rant before the holidays, just getting you all back up to speed on what happened to close out the year and what's been going on since that final pair of top fuel dragsters went down the racetrack in Pomona, California. Thanks for listening to the NHRA Insider Podcast with Brian Loans. We'll be back soon with another one, and we'll keep him cranking all winter long as the offseason gets shorter and shorter by the day. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.